Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic child and adult psychiatrist. Today's episode is part four of a four-part series on our forgotten foundation, our first three years, and our attachment experience. Today, I'll discuss what disrupted attachment in children can look like, and I'll talk about how we can strengthen the foundation in all of our relationships, those with our children, even our adult children, as well as our spouses, partners, and friends. And lastly, I'll comment on how ultimately we can provide that loving, responsive caregiver to ourselves. Let me start with some comments about the state of attachment theory in training of mental health professionals. And this would be for most mental health professionals, certainly not all. And I would say there is very little training in this area. My own training as an adult and then child psychiatrist and even a training program in marriage and family therapy did not include much of what I've discussed in these last four podcasts. My own introduction into this area was a young girl who was in foster care. She had every diagnosis imaginable from ADHD, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, and PTSD. She had been on many medications without clear benefit, and psychotherapy had not been helpful. Clearly, I and those of us trained in conventional mental health were ill-equipped to help her. Who we were better prepared to serve were those with issues that didn't necessarily relate to early disrupted attachment. So after my training and while in private practice, I had a family with two children who were adopted from international orphanages. And it was then that I realized that I had to do training with experts in this area And I went to the Ohio Attachment and Bonding Center where I learned from Dr. Greg Keck and Arlita James. And from there, I not only grew an understanding about these children, I also came to realize how the first three years and all of our attachment experiences um, shape each one of us. Again, remember that we are all here ultimately to connect. So these children with attachment disruption, they have learned through their own experience that the way to survive is to fend for themselves, to not trust and rely on other human beings. And though I'm focusing on children from institutional care, other disrupted attachments, such as for a child who may have been hospitalized or for whatever reason were separated from their primary caregiver, they could experience some of these similar symptoms. So just to point out how much attachment impacts all realms, I'll be talking about physical symptoms, cognitive symptoms, so related to thinking, emotional symptoms, which are related to feelings, and social symptoms. So again, attachment is that powerful. Physical symptoms range from being disconnected from the body to being overwhelmed by stimulation. So a child that has a disrupted attachment and 
has symptoms because of that. They may resist or dislike being held. They may have tactile sensitivities, high pain tolerance, feeding and eating problems, sleep disturbances, uh, enuresis or bedwetting, and encoparesis or soiling, uh, seemingly lacking um, body awareness. They can have failure to thrive. They can have problems with behavioral self-control during preschool years and beyond. Cognitive symptoms can include attentional problems, poor cause and effect thinking, and know that our earliest cause and effect thinking is learned when we cry and when someone responds. So if our actions lead to no response, um, we don't have an opportunity to develop some of that. There can be learning delays, speech and language delays, and lack of impulse control. Emotional symptoms can range from limited access to feelings to being overwhelmed by feelings. And again, some of this will sound familiar based on the attachment styles that I described in the previous uh, podcast where I talked about adult attachment styles. Uh, So lack of emotional responsiveness, low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, There can be symptoms of anger, difficulty regulating emotions, including rage episodes. There can be destructive behaviors to self, others, and property. And this may be out of stimulation-seeking, or it may be out of acting out feelings. There can be cruelty to animals and preoccupation with fire. Social symptoms can range from avoiding social contact to having highly ambivalent feelings in relationships. There can be lack of eye contact, less social or poor peer relationships, lack of an ability to give and receive affection on um, parents' terms. The children may be superficially engaging, not genuine, or inappropriately clingy and demanding. They may be indiscriminately affectionate with strangers. They can have extreme control problems and have persistent nonsense questions and incessant chatter. There can also be stealing and there can be lying. The type of lying when it's obvious that what is being said is not true. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a sneaky. Um, are they telling the truth or not? Very often it's completely blatant and obvious that it's a lie. I won't be providing a comprehensive list of treatment for children and adults with severe attachment disorders. What I would emphasize is the importance of having a therapist who is knowledgeable about attachment. And again, it's not a given that mental health professionals are knowledgeable about attachment, sadly and especially uh, when it comes to children. So therapists who are experienced with attachment-related issues have sessions with parents alone and with parents with their child. They typically do not meet alone with the child. The primary goal of treatment is to increase the connection between the parent and the child and to address the needs that I've previously mentioned.
Another part of treatment, however, that I would emphasize is that it is very important to address the biochemical and nutrient imbalances that, again, these would not be areas considered in conventional medicine, but would be considered in those who've been trained through the Walsh Research Institute. My subspecialty in treating children from international orphanages was prior to my being away from psychiatry for about 10 years. And so when I returned, I started to get referrals again for um, families who had children who were adopted internationally or had children who were adopted from the foster care system. And what I found was that when I treated these children for their nutrient imbalances, something that I'd learned uh, during my time away from psychiatry, was that many of the children who had a dismissive and avoidant attachment style were under-methylated, and most who had the preoccupied ambivalent attachment style were over-methylated, and that almost all the children had high pyrroles, and many had high copper. So these imbalances are very common in in most of the people that I see with brain-related symptoms. However, what was striking here was that the attachment-related symptoms improved in most of these children. And so while attachment therapies can be quite effective, they take a lot of time, and they're very important because nutrients can't necessarily build relationships, but I would say absolutely correcting someone's imbalances can make it much more possible for someone to strengthen and build human connections in ways that they can't when these imbalances are getting in the way. So how do we strengthen the foundation in all of our relationships when it comes to these concepts of attachment? So I'll start with prospective parents, parents of children, young children, even our adult children, our relationships with our partners and spouses, and our relationship with ourselves. So if we are prospective parents, we may want to ask ourselves some questions. First, do we want to have a child? Do we want to be thoughtful about our child's first three years in relation to our career choices or the ages of our other children? What kind of birth process would we like? What do we want the first 24 hours after birth to be like? And keep in mind the medicalization of childbirth has really encroached on the early parent-child bond. Also, we might ask, what can we do to promote connection and minimize our level of stress in the first three years of our child's life? So as prospective parents or current parents, we can think about our own attachment experience. If we want to optimize our child's attachment, we can optimize our own. We can aspire to connect, to be present, to really listen which may not be natural if we weren't listened to ourselves. We can be aware that our children have thoughts and feelings separate from ours, and we can guard against projecting our fears and wants onto them. 
We can also guard against an upside-down family system where the parents' emotions tend to take the higher priority over those of the children. Effective parenting strategies are the ones in which we as parents are responsive but not reactive. Our power is in our wisdom and ability to pull back and see the big picture. As wise parents, when our child has a problem, we seek ways to connect. Remember about proximity that I discussed previously. And we try to see the problem from our child's perspective. We don't oppose them. We get on their side and look at it with them. We don't create distance by dominating, punishing, guilting, withholding our love or yelling. We're able to see the bigger picture, again, of our child's life. We've all known parents whose heart breaks with regret for their adult child who can't leave a domineering or abusive spouse who stays in a toxic workplace, or who chooses to follow a religious or political movement with an authoritarian leader. We learn very young to either listen to ourselves or to listen to the authority around us. Many families are much better at teaching their children to obey authority than they are teaching their children to listen to their own inner wisdom. So there's likely a parent out there who's asking, what about when your child keeps doing the same thing over and over again? How does mama bear handle that? First, we can shift from the angry stance that our child is a problem or even a fearful stance of how is our child going to make it in the world to a mindset of our child has a problem and it's our job as their parent to help them find answers and solutions. This mind shift makes all the difference in whether we react with anger or whether we start to problem solve. In the past, I would have said, instead of punishing or even using rewards or a token system, use natural consequences. What I've found, however, is that even with natural consequences, if we're not careful with our tone, even this can come across as punitive. So let me give an example. So our child calls from school, they forgot their homework project. How might we react? We might say in an irritated tone something like, well, that's what happens when you're messing around in the morning and not doing what you're supposed to. And while this may be human, it's not particularly helpful. It creates distance and shame and does nothing to decrease the likelihood of anything changing for our child. It also shifts the attention to our feelings. Where we should want this attention is how forgetting something affects our child so that they invest the time into preventing that happening. Or instead, we might say in a matter-of-fact or even compassionate tone of voice, Honey, I'm sure you're upset with yourself. I'm in an important meeting and won't be able to bring it. Or we might say, Okay, I can bring it, but that's going to cut into my time, so I'll need you to help with extra chores in the house later. 
If this were to happen again on another day, I might not be able to bring it. And the key here is to be matter of fact, or again, have compassion is even preferable, and to not make it about us. We can have compassion, honor ourselves and our relationship, and keep the attention where it should be. And obviously, if we're realizing our child has a serious problem with memory, attention, or organization, then we'll want to help them find answers and solutions. I should add here, too, that we really can stop ourselves when we find ourselves shaming, punishing, dominating, or guilting our children. Children are never too young to hear our apologies. A parent who hurts their child and doesn't think their child is worthy of an apology undoubtedly has an inner child, a child within them that they carry around who feels unworthy. If we want to stop causing harm, but we don't, we really need to seek help from a professional. So what about parenting teens and our adult children? Just as with younger children, it is never too late to tell our teen or adult children what we remember, what choices we regret, and what we wish we had done differently, even if our parents never did or were never able to do this. This can be powerful for our child, and it can be powerful for us. Not only can an acknowledgement help our adult child make sense of their lives, it also provides them with a role model, someone who has the courage to grow and change and be vulnerable and honest. Putting our ego and pride aside is hard, and uncomfortable. And if it were easy, there wouldn't be so many estranged families out there. If we have a teen or adult child who has an addiction or other brain-related symptoms, that addiction may be their way of trying to regulate emotions or avoid connection. When we reject them, thinking we'll only motivate them to change, We're really only confirming a belief that they're unworthy of connection. We're saying you can't safely communicate your feelings to me, or we're saying you are a problem and not worthy. We live in a culture where those in greatest need of connection and purpose, and I would consider purpose the way we connect to the world, how we serve each other. So we live in a culture where those in greatest need of connection and purpose, are banished and locked away. I'm not suggesting we enable or rescue, nor am I saying we should support someone's addiction or allow them to abuse or take advantage of us. What I am suggesting is that we wisely pull back far enough to see what it is that we have to offer. And usually that's our presence and a shared knowledge that there's someone in the world that's always there for them. And when it comes to spouses, partners, and even friends, I think much of what I've talked about applies. It's still about giving the time, the presence, the attention, and really listening to the other person's feelings, even when they involve us. When we become reactive or defensive or worse, 
start to blame the other person when all they're doing is expressing their feelings, then that obviously doesn't create a closeness. And it can take a lot of practice, and sometimes it can even take the help of professionals in the form of uh, couples or marital therapy to really be in a place to listen and try to hear the other person's perspective without, again, reacting or stepping in or trying to advise or fix whatever it is that they're trying to express. And really, this topic is worthy of a podcast in of itself, so I'll look forward to talking about um, the dynamics in couples in a future podcast. So what about our relationship with ourself? I mentioned just previously uh, that we carry within us this inner child. So even if our parents could help us rewrite our stories we've been telling ourselves about ourselves, even if they were the ideal parents for our needs, the reality is that there isn't a parent, spouse, partner, or friend who can provide what we as adults ultimately need, which is the realization that we have part of ourself ready to care for us. And it's that part of ourself that does know who to reach out to, who we can trust, who will listen, and who we can share our feelings with. You might call this part of ourselves an inner parent. You might think of this part of yourself as the soul. So how can this inner parent, this nurturing part of ourselves, care for that vulnerable infant toddler part of ourself that we carry within us? And I would say the same way we would interact or aspire to interact with any other infant or toddler. And that would be with tenderness, with patience, and with presence. If we have an insecure attachment style, we can use tools to address our needs, which I listed in the previous podcast, in fact, the one prior to this, where I talk about different attachment styles. And we can take advantage of neuroplasticity, and that's our brain's ability to rewire itself. Even if we are securely attached, our well-being and our ability to fulfill our purpose depends on our tending to this inner infant and toddler. One way to bring this vulnerable part of us into consciousness is to find a photo from when we were young. For some of us, doing so may be too soon or may trigger strong emotions. We'll know if this is something for us to do at this time or not. Otherwise, we can place the photo somewhere we'll see it each day, maybe on our nightstand or our desk, and we can notice and be curious about that infant or toddler. We can even begin to have affection for them and want to care for them. Inevitably, in our day-to-day lives, feelings will arise. Things happen. We become angry. We may act out our feelings. Maybe we feel ignored or ashamed. Maybe we learn something that makes us scared for ourselves or someone we love. Maybe we find ourselves turning to an addiction in an attempt to numb our feelings. Or maybe we don't know what we're feeling. Each of these reactions can be opportunities to consider what that inner vulnerable child needs in that moment. And each of these are opportunities 
to consider that caregiver within us and what they can provide. We can express our feelings through journaling or talking to a trusted friend. We can comfort ourselves with a good book, a hot bath, a warm blanket, a breathing exercise, or a meditation, whatever it is that makes us feel grounded and safe and calm. We can even take that inner child out for a walk and while doing so, start to shift our attention from the details that we're concerned about in our lives to the bigger picture. And we can even remind ourselves in a reassuring voice, you're okay, your feelings matter, everything's going to be fine, you're worthy to receive, whatever it is that we need to hear. And whenever we notice tension in our body, we can hum, we can take deep breaths, we might even sing. And all of these will access the parasympathetic part of our autonomic nervous system or our vagus nerve, which I talk about in a previous podcast. And all of that brings our body and mind into a state of calm. So I'd like to end with a quote by Annie Lamott, who, if you are a writer, you're probably familiar with her book, Bird by Bird. Uh, She has a nice TED Talk that I would encourage you to look at that's quite funny. And it's basically the 12 things that she's learned from her life and writing. But one of the parts that I wanted to emphasize was this particular quote that really speaks to this need for us to while certainly getting help from others, also recognize our ability to tend to our own emotional needs by calling in this inner parent, so to speak. She says, while fixing and saving and trying to rescue others is futile, radical self-care is quantum, and it radiates out from you into the atmosphere like a little fresh air. It's a huge gift to the world. She goes on, being full of affection for one's goofy, self-centered, cranky, annoying self is home. It's where world peace begins. I hope this podcast has been helpful to you. If you'd like to be notified of future episodes, please subscribe at my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com. If you know someone you think could benefit from this information, perhaps someone who has a child with symptoms of attachment disruption or a parent of an adult child or a family member of someone who's dealing with addiction, then please consider sharing. Also, if you would like to help me get this type of information just generally out into the world, then If you like or comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, wherever you're coming by this particular podcast, that would be very helpful. And lastly, if you have any questions that relate to attachment or any of the other podcasts, please feel free to send them my way. I look forward to doing a future podcast episode that will be all questions and answers. So again, you can visit my website, CourtneySnyderMD.com, and submit them there. So until the next podcast, I will look forward to connecting with you again. And until then, take care. Bye-bye.